Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Chris Vaughn, a 20-year mergers and acquisitions veteran with 50-plus transaction who specializes in acquisition integration. Thank you for being on the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Ron. Cool. So I, I always like to start off with kind of like your background and how you got into this. You've got a really cool background. And, and uh, so tell us kind of your background in mergers and acquisitions and how you got into the space. Um, it was in, in the last century, which was also the last millennium. Uh, 1996, I started with Anderson in Germany and uh, I started working with GE Capital. And uh, they, at the time, um, did a whole series of acquisitions, GE style, and uh, acquired the uh, modular space like cont- uh, containers for, um, for offices and things of that nature, not for transportation. And uh, we did about 20 acquisitions and, uh, um, and created a market leader in Europe in that space from scratch. And uh, so that was that was my first M&A project and I was completely hooked and I just want to do M&A projects after that. And since then, you've actually done M&A projects for like Cisco, Symantec and a bunch of other companies, right? Yeah, I kind of went in inside companies that did deals and then I went back to consulting. You know, there are pros and cons to it. I, I was internal to Cisco and, and Symantec. We did a lot of deals there. Um, the thing is, if you're internal to M&A and then your company doesn't do any more M&A, then you're sitting there doing other type of projects. And uh, uh, when you're a consultant, you're a little bit more flexible in regards So then you just go to a different client. So, um, so that's why I kind of went, went in and out. Right now, I'm with Slalom Consulting, which is an international consulting firm. We have about 15,000 people and uh, um, we, uh, um, we are focusing on M&A. That's what I do right now. It's interesting is I, I didn't realize how big Salome was until I looked at it and it has like 11,000 plus employees on LinkedIn, which means you have to have more than that because not everybody has a LinkedIn profile, right? Or are connected, you know, or, or has updated their LinkedIn profile since they got a job, their last job. Most, most individuals uh, will leave their LinkedIn profile outdated until they're looking for a job. So, uh, but uh, no, I, I didn't realize how big it really was. So that's cool. So the reason I bring that up is your big company, you've got a lot of experience in huge company acquisitions and, you know, our audience is a lot of small, medium business. So what I want to do today is take the lessons you've learned and this, the skills and the specialties you have, and then have everybody understand that this all translates and relates to any acquisition, right? So uh, we're still dealing with businesses that house and employ people who have specialized needs and, and emotions and, you know, 
challenges inside of an acquisition process. So uh, I think there's a huge opportunity and I love doing these type of shows where you take somebody who has bigger company experience than what we're used to and looking, looking at and learn, taking the lessons that they've learned over the years and applying it down to the level uh, that we're playing at for two reasons, right? One, rather learn from somebody else's mistakes and do things, you know, right. And two, these are companies that we're buying it someday. We kind of hope to sell to those, right? We, we hope to, to need, uh, you know, a company like your, your consulting company or, you know, sell to a Cisco or a Symantec or, and what better, what better to have a way to build something to sell to those guys than actually kind of know what their processes are and what they, what they're doing and make sure we, we put those same systems and processes in place for us. So let's kind of start with, what does it mean to be, you know, a, a acquisition integration specialist? What what that is that involved? What what are we integrating here? Well, my my role usually starts uh, after the definitive agreement um, or before the definitive agreement around the uh, um, due diligence, operational due diligence, or uh, commercial due diligence. So, looking under the hood of uh, the car that you want to buy, or meeting the parents, or whatever. <laughs> Where you want to describe that phase, so um, so starting to identify risks um, that uh, from from an acquirer perspective. So usually I'm uh, engaged uh, from the acquirer and uh, to better understand the operations and then to validate the deal thesis that has been developed. So um, and to to validate the the, the the price, right? So is it really worth X? And uh, and then uh, prior to close, we start with integration planning and figure out um, how do we organize the team, uh, how do we address the risks and issues that we found in the due diligence, and, the, uh, um, and how do we maximize and, and uh, accelerate the deal value realization. So that's basically it. And then uh, we execute uh, the integration. And um, even companies that are serial acquirers, um, like the Salesforce of the world, that they, they buy one company after another, even they bring in consultants because it doesn't make sense for an organization to staff up to that level. Um, because what do you do with all these people when uh, you don't have a big acquisition, right? So then they just sit around to their thumbs. So that's not good for your GNA. And uh, so that's why we are, uh, we are supporting small deals. So the smallest deal that I did actually in the last year was 30 people. A uh, very small deal for a company in Atlanta called Pindrop. And uh, uh, the largest deals, I mean, they can go into the um, billions for sure. One of the things that happens when we acquire the companies is there's, there's, you know, at our level, the small medium business, we're looking at their financials. We're looking at the team, but not in a respect where they're adding value on the team. Mentally, I'm sure we are like, can I build a report with these people? Will they continue doing what they've always done? Do they intend on leaving that type of stuff? But a lot of these, especially in the tech world, a lot of these acquisitions have a lot to do with who's on there. Right. There's this thing called aqua hire where you're actually buying the company because of the team. You're buying the company because of the expertise and the knowledge that they have accumulated in that team role. Do you spend much time kind of evaluating and assessing the skill sets of team members and kind of figure out some value to that? If I just zoom out a little bit in the 1980s, it was over 80 percent of the value of the Fortune 500 company were in tangible assets. So those were airplanes, mining rights, equipment, buildings, uh, et cetera. 
Uh, this has completely flipped. If you look at the Fortune 500 now, over 80% of the value of these companies, market value is in intangible assets. That is IP, that is brand value, that is customer relationship. And if you, it doesn't have to be an acquire. If you're buying another company because of their product, because of their customers, et cetera, the, the people at these companies, they build these products. And if you lose those people, you will lose that innovation velocity. And uh, yes, you bought a product, but, but can you, how long can you maintain that product? What is the next uh, uh, upgrade from that product? What is that about that customer relationship and that customer intimacy that, that they have developed? Can you just transport that over? I was part of an acquisition um, back in uh, 2004. Uh, 2000, uh, around that time frame of 2003, when uh, uh, Bearing Point acquired Arthur Anderson. And uh, um, so one consulting firm buying another consulting firm, it wasn't the whole entity. It was after the Enron uh, uh, problem. And, uh, and Bearing Point did a really bad job with the integration. And uh, despite the fact that we are both consulting firms and, you know, the consulting firm business model is, I think, the most simplistic one out there. You know, you've got utilization times billable rate and, and there's your profitability model. Despite the fact that the culture could have not been any different and within a very short time frame, most of the Arthur Anderson people, they were gone. And, uh, and then what is the value that you acquired when all the consultants are gone? So I've got example after example for how, how turnover really dilutes the value of the deal and uh, um, in the short term as well as in the long term. And we were talking about this a little bit before the show. Uh, there's this interesting thing. A lot of times you're acquired by one of your biggest competitors. So if you've worked at the same company for 5, 10, 15 years and you've been taught to uh to to hate a competitor like that's your number one foe then uh, all of a sudden now that's somebody you should be listening to or that you're working for how often does that occur and what does that have an impact on the uh, the people in the company it depends i i don't have like a, a standard answer for that you you I mean, obviously, usually it's a larger company buying a smaller company, right? And then uh, usually uh, if, if you have like a, a horizontal um, um, uh, acquisition where you're acquiring a competitor, um, th that, that happens quite often. Let, let, me, let me give you an example from the other side. At, um, at Symantec, I also led uh, um, the... Uh, uh, demand management, and I had a large pro, uh, had a large RFP out for uh, desktop video conferencing. You know that was before all the desktops had a little camera in it, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, our CEO wanted uh, wanted to be ready for to work remotely, and that, that's like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that, that time frame. So so a while ago, and we had a proposal out to Cisco, HP, uh, Tandberg, and Polycom. And, uh, and wh while all of those uh, proposals came back, and those were multi-million dollar proposals, Cisco acquired Tandberg. That was during that process. And, and I actually, I came from Cisco, so I called my Cisco uh, friends over and I said, you know, can I use, uh, I, I've got this RFP uh, response from you guys. Can I use the camera from Tandberg, which I really liked, with the uh, uh, service package from Cisco, which we thought was really good? And uh, they said, well, we don't know yet. And then what, what about the pricing? Are you going to keep the pricing? 
And again, we don't know yet. So they're, they're like two competitors by, uh, coming together. And, and here I'm giving you like a customer perspective on how this looked like. It put me in a really bad position for my CIO who called me and uh, Renee McGaskill. And she was like, Chris, what is going on with the, uh, with the with this RFI, RFP that we've got out? Um, Enrique, our CEO, he, he wants this. And what does this mean? And, and you came from Cisco, you should know. And, and it put me in a bad position. Again, it's people centricity during M&A. This deal, Cisco and Tantberg put me in a bad position, their customer, because I have internal customers too. And if they don't put me in a position to intelligently talk to my boss about what this combination means, I'm in a bad place. And they put me in a bad place. I, I, I called them together. At the end of the day, we went with HP because Cisco basically didn't fast enough to find their product roadmap on what they are going to do. So, so when I'm talking about people's centricity, I'm not just talking about the employees of the acquired company. I'm talking about customers as well. I'm talking about partners and vendors. What happens to your vendor base when, when you acquire your competitor and your partner out there, he, he is very successful selling your product but he is not carrying the product of that comp uh, competitor. And, and that, that part did a good job building your brand in the marketplace. And all of a sudden, you're expecting that, that, that company or that individual, maybe an individual or a team at that uh, partner to also sell who he badmouthed in the past. Back to your example. It is very right. difficult. And it, and it may put them in a difficult position. And it's not enough to just send them the marketing enablement material and say, hey, good news, you know, you're now, you sold A before and now you also can sell B because we acquired B. Imagine working for some company. I don't, I don't recall any ever hiring any employees directly from Symantec other than Enrique. He came from Symantec, came our CEO, then Symantec body, meaning ended up being Symantec CEO. So that's an interesting loop that happened. But, uh, you know, a lot of times you're, you know, you moved from one company because you didn't like it there. And now that company bought you back, right? As a, if, you know, even some of the executives, you look at the executives of these companies, um, they, they might've left the company that is now the acquisition target or, or even, you know, is now the, you know, acquiring party. Do you, do you work with those individuals? What does that conversation look like? How do you integrate individuals and bring them into the, uh, into the conversation, show that they have value in the new organization? Are you specifically referring to leadership? Uh, we have to start with leadership, but then doesn't it roll down to everybody? I mean, there's got to be a plan. There's got to be some type of systematic approach to where we keep the employees on board with what's happening in, in now and what's going to happen in the future. Right. I mean, leadership is, uh, is the absolute uh, uh, focus around uh, uh, acquisitions, right? So if you, and, and if you lose the leader of the acquired company, you lose a lot of the value. Um, if you look at the uh, latest acquisition from Adobe, um, they acquired Figma for $20 billion. Do you have you have you seen the retention package for um, I think his name is Daniel Scott I may be wrong, um, but uh, uh, have you seen the the uh, retention package of the CIO one billion dollars? Wow, with a B. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'd hang around for that, right? I mean, uh, right. Uh, if you need me to hang around, I, I might even be able to hang around for a you know a half a B, so a little right. B. Right. I, I want to see his earnout schedule, but. 
but you know this is this is clearly understood that you are not just buying you you're not just buying a successful product because behind a successful product are successful people and a successful organization so the question becomes what happens to these people as you are bringing them into your organization are you going to give them uh, autonomy and uh, or are you going to integrate them into your system uh, do they have the same orientation towards what i call the three uh, corners of the triangle how companies are organized around the customer around the product and around process or not um, some companies are very process oriented look at look at the acquisition of uh, whole foods and amazon Sorry, I only have like big examples. That's okay. No, no, no. I want to take these lessons from these big examples and figure out how do we how do we apply that to the uh, small to medium business world, right? So I, I love the big examples. So Whole Food, Amazon buys Whole Foods. What you were you were going somewhere with? What, what happened? Amazon is a very process oriented company. They really optimize the hell out of their process, and 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 you see this in in their buying experience. At Whole Foods, they were all about the product. They were in love with the product and they didn't care that, that uh, a, a, a bottle of uh, asparagus infused water was like $12 because they thought that that was just the best, the best thing with, combined with a high level of autonomy at the local level. And, and when, they, when, when Amazon first rolled into Whole Foods, it was what people call a culture clash, right? Because, because Whole Foods was not used to to, uh, uh, to optimizing against price, which Amazon did. Uh, surprisingly, I mean, if you, if you look at the new prices at Whole Foods, despite people's perception that they are still very expensive, they're actually at the same level as uh, you're in California, like a Safeway. They're not more expensive. But, right. but it, was, it, was, it was a real clash. There was a lot of turnover. I knew a lot of people that, that worked at Whole Foods in Austin. And, uh, and I saw how that came to be, together. I've seen a lot of other examples. And if you are bringing in another conversation around retention of leadership, um, if the leaders leave, it usually has a chain reaction and it poisons the well for the people underneath. Um, many examples on that. And, and one of my clients, they, uh, um, they are also a serial acquirer and they identified actually the leader's journey as being uh, um, one of the key indicators when, when the people, when, like the top person or the top five people, when they leave, um, the value of the deal and the innovation velocity as a tech client, the innovation velocity when, uh, goes down. In other words, they acquire a product and then the product, you, you see that product kind of sitting there. It may get another upgrade or two. It goes from 2.1 to 2.2 to 2.3, but there's no version three coming out. And, and then it just goes sideways because these people leave and that innovation velocity gets lost. It's interesting if you look at, especially in the tech world, uh, I just know that because that's where I came from. Um, as I moved from one tech company to the other, there were at least two, maybe three people that usually I'd find a way to pull over with me, right? The teams do follow their leaders around. And I ended up you know, at, at, at my highest level, I was like senior director of operations, technical guy running the tech stuff. But I, I had two or three guys who enjoyed working with me. I enjoyed work with them. I knew what they knew and knew what they could get done. And if it was within my power, I would, you know, when I moved to the next company, I took them with me. So is there any mapping that out? Like if you look at a company, as you're looking at these strategic leaders and looking and, and is there any like analysis that's getting into place where you go, you know, these 50, this, this leader has these team of 
10 people who have followed them the last two jobs. They work, they work, you know, if you look at their career paths, you know, they worked at XYZ Corp and then, you know, the leader moved and worked at, you know, uh, uh, ABC Corp. And all of a sudden those four people now work at ABC Corp, right? You can, I bet you could map that out. I bet there's a way, I mean, even on LinkedIn or something, you could figure out, you know, who's following who in these type of acquisitions. Um, I think that's a, that's a great idea. I haven't seen that done in the past, but I think that is, that is definitely that, that would help understand how, you know, how teams stay together that win. And, uh, um, and if you lose like one or two people, then there's a high likelihood that you lose the rest. And, uh, um, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great idea. Uh, by the way, the CEO of, uh, Figma is, uh, Dylan Field, uh, not okay. Scott. I, I got that wrong. So I just want to make that. Correct. He's a young guy too, right? He's like, uh, I want to say he's in his 20s, 26, 25, somewhere in there. Oh, uh, he is, uh, according to Wikipedia, he's 30 years old at this point. Okay. I just seen some article and I was like, man, imagine starting a company. Uh, you're out there chugging along and somebody buys you for the bees, you know, and, and he owned quite a big, a big chunk of it. I want to say he owned enough that he's getting a billion dollar check too, like a two, two billion, three billion dollar check on, on his behalf. Um, I think it's going to make him one of the younger, younger billionaires out there. Yeah. That ship has sailed for me, but yes, <laughs> I guess, uh, but, but it, it really underlines the strategic play that companies make with M&A. Right. And uh, sometimes I'm just puzzled when I see what companies are paying for, how little they're investing in the integration. And, and I show them this BCG study. And I was like, look, you know, you, you, you just spent $20 billion. How much are you actually investing in getting, in getting this to work? And, and then they say, well, you know, we've got like a program manager on this, but he or she, you know, also has like three other projects. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then everybody else it's it's just their 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 um their, their hobby so to say right so they've got a full-time job and then on top of that they also have to do the integration and i'm like wow you just spent that much money and this is how much you're spending on actually making the why because they toss it over to the operators the people that kind of run operations they they run their 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 functional silos and for them mna quite often is just a distraction and they just they just want to go back to business as usual. What do you think about these uh, like kind of golden handcuffs that go down into the employee level? I get it that the the founders get them, and what I'm talking about is earn out plans and uh, bonuses for staying on for a year, two years, three years, five years after an acquisition. But I honestly think there's something to the psychology of knowing you can't leave, where you've got like you're being paid to stay that may have an adverse effect at the end of that. So imagine being a, a director level or, you know, and I've been in positions where a company um, was, had an offer on the table and part of the, and I was on the executive side of the team, like the director level and got into the conversation as like, look, if this happens, you get, you know, so much for your stock options now. And at a year you get this at two years, you get this in three years. And, I think there's a lot of people that start planning, okay, at the end of three years, I'm, you know, I can start looking for a job and you've got, it sets a mindset. What do you, what do you think about those type of packages? You think they're more beneficial than harmful or you think there's the potential for harm and setting the expectation that, yeah, I want you, I'm, I'm going to pay you extra money for stay for three years, but at the end of three years, you're free to go. Right. I mean, different people are motivated in different ways. 
some for some people it's just about money uh having said that um is a sen- one topic that i'm focusing on a lot is creating a sense of belonging and uh and the, there's a lot of um, psychological studies out there and if you look at maslow's um, pyramid of need motivational psychology is a sense of belonging is a fundamental need uh, from a human psychology perspective if you don't uh have a sense of belonging to anything right whether it is your uh your friends or the people that you hang out with or the people that you work with uh your your engagement level suffers and uh, your retention suffers right so you you are most likely not coming back so for MNA it's specifically difficult because you had a sense of belonging to company A and the leadership of company A always tells you that you should pour your heart and mind into the organization give it your all this quarter is the most important quarter this month is the most important month this week is the make or break right so so lean in as hard as you can and then from one day to another they're like oh we just sold it and uh, it is no longer that brand and you are expected to shift your loyalty overnight from from having a sense of belonging to that company a to company b and uh, um and then you actually from a psychological perspective you go through what is called a liminal state where you are no longer associated with company a because you know some people they, i mean i felt a, a sense of betrayal when i saw that arthur anderson got sold right because i was i was really hard into that culture and uh, um and then you're supposed to develop a sense of belonging to that new organization that that sends you stuff you know swag or whatever and there may be a financial retention package but that liminal state is a very vulnerable state to be in and it's very easy to to make rash decisions and and to leave how do you avoid it what's the what's the communicate I, i get it i get it and my belief is inside of the communications process right communicating with all the leaders communicating have helping them communicate with the employees creating that sense of value but having the experience of 50 transactions yourself what are the key elements to successfully having people build that that sense of new belonging to the new corporation that sense of this is going to be okay and i have a future at this new company again there's there's actually a lot of research on that topic um that uh um i'm happy to share i i i recently wrote a uh, an article on that a blog post uh, i don't know whether we can share this on this uh, i think I, i shared it with you sure it's my show you can share anything you want <laughs> the first thing you have to figure out is how do you know right how do you know that things are going bad with with your employees let's just talk about the employees let's not talk about customers and partners and vendors and shareholders etc cetera, etc cetera, because there are human beings too mm-hmm. and you may and your deal may put them in a difficult spot like the Cisco Tanberg deal put me in a difficult spot when i was uh, um, at Symantec um so how do you know what are your and i call them listening posts so what are your listening posts you are running the integration or you're like the, the ceo leadership how um what companies usually look at is turnover the uh, um th- there was a study again it's in my article from uh, uh, Sloan School of Business that acquired company turnover on average year one is around 34%. If 34% of people are leaving the same amount of people are probably looking for a job, right? So all of a sudden you have 60% of people 
who are either not engaged or not fully engaged during the most critical time of the value realization of your big investment. <laughs> so what, I mean, with all the tools that are out there these days, it looks like somebody, they may probably already have, um, I would love to see a tool or like to see if something out there, a leading, so that's a trailing indicator. Here's, I'm very ADD, so I, I, did, I started telling you what I was thinking about without telling you where I was going with it. Um, that's a that's a trailing indicator, right? A turnover yeah. is a trailing indicator, and it's kind right. of after effect. So now you right. the damage is done. Thirty percent, you know, people are leaving, people are looking for jobs. What is a leading indicator? And I would say if you could write a scraping bot or some type of um, tool that would monitor LinkedIn, Monster, Indeed, all these different platforms where people update their resumes and their uh, their descriptions, and just give me a count on. I've got, you know, like your your uh, your Salome. They have fifteen thousand employees. Eleven thousand of them are on on LinkedIn. They get acquired. I want to know a day to day how many of those employees updated and changed. There's like some type of change detection software changed their LinkedIn profile, right? That's a leading indicator. You know, a lot of those people are not going to make fundamental change like up you know updating their job description at their current company is one of the first things you do when you start to look for a new position right i you know list all my accomplishments with the previous company because people are going to look this up um put posting resumes on all the job sites would be a leading indicator uh, are there tools out there like that or do you know of any the announcement of an acquisition is also ringing the dinner bell for all these headhunting companies Right. That's when that's when they go. That's when they go after people. So um, so I know that that I can uh, um, I, I have a recruiter license for for LinkedIn. I can certainly see, you know, who is who is putting their flag to open to work. It is one of those listening posts. You can certainly deploy another listening post is looking at Glassdoor uh, or things of that nature. What do people write? Uh, another listening post is to just look at, for example, the absenteeism that people have, how many how many people are not showing up for work? Uh, how many people, uh, vandalism, you, you mentioned vandalism, sometimes you see vandalism rates go up. These are all indicators and listening posts that will tell you that things are not going well. And uh, a lot of companies do a 30, 60, 90 day survey with an acquired company where they actually ask them questions. You can have uh, change agents. Um, there, there is no silver bullet, right? But these are all, it, it is very important to define what are your listening posts and, and to identify where do you have problems because sometimes you have problems in specific areas of the population, not everybody. And then you can go in there and then you can um, define interventions in order to counter steer. Um, if you don't have that, you are left with like one inch deep and one mile wide and, and it's uh, the same thing for everybody. Uh, you really, you really have to have a nuanced approach because uh, people in engineering are different than people in sales. They're different than people in finance and in HR. They, they just tick differently, and uh, for some of them, it's much easier to go through a change like this. And uh, um, and you you need to know who you are dealing with, and uh, and you have to get your mind around that quickly because you can't wait for the next survey a month out to figure out that oh, you know, it's like it got really bad. So that, that, that's basically, and, and, and in general, you, you ask for what are the things that you can do in order to create a sense of belonging. Um, I see a lot of companies, they, uh, um, they say we do no harm approach. We leave them separate. We leave them standing out there. Yes, we acquired you, but we leave you alone. Uh, 
And that very often is the beginning of the end because then while that message comes out and then the finance organization and the HR organization and IT, they're rolling out their productivity tools and all of a sudden you've got a different productivity tools. Then all of a sudden there's like the procurement organization is like, yeah, you, you know, your, your, your card, your, your company card, we take that away from you, you know, and now you have this approval cycle and it's like cut by cut. These companies are just being strangled into following the acquiring companies' processes while they're being promised that, oh, we leave you alone and we love what you do and we love you and, 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 and we like the way you are. And that is a recipe that I've seen fail over and over again. We just leave you separate. There's a tool out there that maybe somebody's already developed or not developed, and that's normalizing like what's normal in your company's LinkedIn in your company's employees, LinkedIn profiles and online presence, as far as how often do they update their, their profiles, all that. If you normalize that and you start to go into an acquisitions and merger cycle, you could pretty, you could have an early detector pretty quickly of, wait a second, we're seeing a lot more movement now with our like on average, 10% of our employees have their resume uh, active in, and up to date on X number of platforms. And then the an announcement happens. Does that number spike? When does it change? And if you could watch it on a regular basis, I, you'd almost need to do it before, I think, because you need to see what's normal, right? You need to see on average, you know, 10% of the employees, you know, are just good at keeping their stuff up to date or are actively looking anyway. And then, what changes that change detection is, is critical. Um, it's kind of what I used to do in the computer security world is like, you can tell when somebody's breaking into the computer, if you just run a really good change detection program, because in order for them to, to do what they need to, they have to make changes to your configuration into your system. So change detection was for the longest time, one of the leading indicators that somebody's messing with stuff they shouldn't. Right. It's just a thought process on like, how do you detect this? So. Yeah, I think, I think that, uh, that that is definitely a way, but let me let me pull on the thread a little bit. Leave okay. it standalone. Um, usually, I see uh, um, acquisition integration go in three chapters. The first chapter is keep the lights on, mm -hmm. and making sure that people don't leave. Make the sh make sure that you don't lose your customers. Uh, that the bills are being paid. Literally, that the lights are staying on. And then the second phase, quite often, is the integration of the go to market. Uh, functions like sales, you bring sales together because you have these better together deals. You know, you're, you're selling the company's products, both company products together. You're upselling into their customer base or upselling with their product into your customer base. Uh, support is coming together because you want an integrated customer experience where they don't have to call into that support line for, for that product and this support line for the other product, etc. And then, so that's the second phase is the go-to-market integration. And then everything around customer. And then the third phase is the integration of the products, where you're really bringing the products together. It takes a little longer, right? So, so you you may have to re-platform things. You may have to uh, um, uh, make sure that that uh, uh, the product features are aligned. And and if you look at a lot of companies that acquired other companies years later, you still see the products being like very separate. And uh, so the, the product integration takes the longest. So if you, if you look about these three chapters, I think it is very important to have a vision for all three chapters right at the beginning, right? At the beginning, we keep you standalone. Then we bring together the, the go-to-market and customer-facing functions. And then we bring together the products. This is, and the long-term product roadmap looks like this. 
right? right. So, so the platformization of the products, for example, a big topic in the SaaS industry. So, um, so if you, I think it, it is so critical for, for bringing people along on the journey to spell out the journey at the beginning. So where this thing is going and then make sure that people can see themselves and, uh, uh, and, and see how their individual careers fits, fit into that. How do the, um, how do the bigger acquisitions uh, do the, the initial phase of it, knowing they're buying the right thing? Are you involved with a lot of that, like targeting, making the, like the acquisition, you know, hey, we're looking for a company to solve our supply chain management. Can you help us identify uh, supply chain management, companies that have great supply chain management that would fit right in with us and our culture, our, culture, our procedures and stuff. Are you involved in that, like defining of an acquisition target at all? Um, I'm personally not. That's not something that I do or my team does. We, we have people at Slalom that uh, do this type of work looking, looking for acquisition targets. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's not something that that I'm I'm uh, focused on. So and and I mean also what kind of for what kind of buyer, right? Are you looking for like a private equity buyer that that buys into a portfolio of company, or are you looking for like a, a strategic buyer that that looks at at something that in order to accelerate their um, their strategy? So so either one. I always love a great story. Let's just do it story time real quick. What is one of the most memorable transactions you were involved with that you and your team and your, uh, whether it's this company or a previous company, you've seen things happening, we're able to turn it around or, I mean, what's the most interesting thing that sticks in your mind about one of the deals out of, out of all the 50 transactions you've been involved with? Um, there's gotta be a few that stuck in your mind. For sure. There, 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 there are many that stick to mind. Let, let me, let me tell you like first, like one of the, the worst ones that I've seen was a transaction in the uh, um, fintech space. They acquired a company for what was a half a billion dollars, roughly right around there. I got involved. So I, I was talking on and off to their executive team and they are like, yeah, we've got this, we can do this ourselves. And then once in a while we would have a conversation. I was like, how are things going? Well, you know, it's not going so well, but we've got this. And at some point, they told me, well, we, we need your help. Uh, here's what happened. We just had to fire the CEO of that company, literally walk him out of the building. Uh, the head of the uh, HR organization has left and the head of the finance organization has left. We, we don't have them integrated yet. And, uh, um, and it, it looks like much of the HR organization has also left. And, uh, uh, and that was during the pandemic. And then I asked them, so do you actually know who is still there? And they're like, yeah, we can look at the we can look at the paychecks that we're still cutting. And I was like, yeah, but you cutting somebody a paycheck doesn't mean that they are still working for you, because <laughs> it looks like you completely lost control of that organization. And uh, um, and and do you, do you have any uh, login scripts from uh, uh, from the IT organization that we can use in order to see who's even still logging in on a daily basis? in order to, to compare this. And they said, oh, that's a good idea. And then we found out that over half the people that they were paying were not even logging in anymore for like weeks. So they, they probably were already working somewhere else or on vacation or wh- whatever, but it, it was, uh, um, and then they asked me whether I have any, um, a- any qualifications that I can share with them on where I've seen something like this before. And I was like, I've never seen something like this. This is the worst I, I have seen. 
you have completely lost control of that acquisition and you just spent half a billion dollars and you already have the next two acquisitions in the pipeline and you don't even have a standing integration management office. The person running that is also running like three other strategic initiatives and they're like, yeah, we run very lean. And I see it. I see it constantly, especially in our level, a small to medium sized business level. The the people say the financials are the most important. The the numbers are the most important. The revenue is the most important. I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely, positively not. The people are most important. Who's working there? What do they enjoy about their job? Are they going to stay? Are they going to go? What do they add? What value to add? Do they add to the company? And how? And where do they want to be? Right. Understanding that. I could I could see where things fall apart because people were were geared inside of this industry and they're taught in school. It's about looking at profit and loss statements and balance sheets and numbers and patents and intellectual property. And every single person that has a paycheck is a human being with their own psychological needs. You're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you just cut one of the biggest ones out of underneath them, safety. Right. They are no longer safe because they just got acquired. They don't know, you know, some stranger just walked in and like straight, you know, we teach our kids. I have a six year old, some weirdo asked her to get in her, you know, in her, in his RV a week ago. And I freaked out when and talked to the guy, right? This 80 year old man. We teach, and luckily I'd already taught her stranger danger. So we're taught from the earliest ages, especially here in the United States, of the stranger danger. All of a sudden you're in a company that is acquired by a stranger. Remember, we're not supposed to talk to strangers. So right. it is very disruptive. And mentally, psychologically, uh, you know, all the words you can add on there, emotionally, uh, motivationally, like you've got to address that. And the only way to do it is through communications um, and staying, you know, understanding what their needs are, what their concerns are, and figuring out a way to communicate that it's going to be all right and, and, and living up to it. Right. There's nothing like saying it's going to be all right and just doing what you want to do. Like, you know, it's going to be all right. You're going to you, you'll adapt to what we're going to do to you no matter what we throw at you. That just doesn't fly. That, that is that is exactly right. We uh, uh, recently supported a company and uh, they, uh, um, you, you know, uh, one of closing conditions is usually that a certain percentage of, of uh, target company employees accept the offer letter. So at some point, HR will send out an offer letter and people have to return that signed or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, prior to that offer letter being sent out after the deal was announced, the C uh, we, uh, uh, had, we wrote a, a communication for the CEO and it said, why, we, why, we, uh, why I believe you belong to us or you, we, we belong together. And, uh, um, and, and he usually these communications spell out the strategic rationale for the deal. You know, this is why why we acquired you. This is how it fits into our strategic roadmap. We'll be doing great things for our customers. But the message was spun towards, you know, the perspective of the employees and and why why this is such a good combination for them and, and why why they really belong together. We had 100% acceptance of, uh, of offer letters. I've never seen this before. And in the, uh, um, in the first... Um, survey that we did, a lot of people wrote that that communication really touched them. And uh, because it is that anxiety that you talk about, right? It's that shock, uh, different flag on the castle, right? It's a shock. It is, it is something that, uh, that people are not prepared for. And uh, the first reaction is to step back. Yeah. And, and it is hard to lean in again.
I'd love to see that leading indicators, like, you know, like I was talking about earlier, something out there, like before you're even acquired that, you know, you know, your conditions of acquisition is that so many employees have to accept the offer letter. The day the offer letter goes out, I want to see what happens on all the, uh, the resume websites, the LinkedIn's of the world and the, uh, right. Uh, that would be a good leading indicator. We send out an offer letter and how many people rushed out to, to fill out their, uh, <laughs> to update their job profiles and, you know, you know, made significant changes to the, the text on their, their profiles on various sites. I, I just, I still think there would be some, you could tell whether or not you need to have a second communication if you actually could track that fairly well, right? Like, wait a second, we, ha- we sent out our thing, we had a, a webinar or a, a, you know, a video where you know, the CEO came in and said why we belong together. You know, all the leading indicators out there on the internet looks like nobody's, you know, there doesn't seem to be a big rush to updating profiles and updating resumes and sending them out, you know, in the first week, or wait a second, that still seems pretty high. Maybe it needs to be a follow-up or a survey that goes out and say, Hey, you know, we just sent a communication out telling you why we think we'd work together. And my favorite thing to do is what did, what did we say that, that resonated with you? What did we do right? What can we improve on? And what did we miss? Those are the, I, at the end of every meeting I've ever had, I, you know, that's what, you know, for the last probably 10 years, that's the, th- the three questions I ask my team. What do we do well today? What do we do great? Right? What can we improve upon? And what do we just totally miss? We should have talked about what we didn't. And I think if you did, if you could see the leading indicators at the first second of, of sign of trouble, have those type of conversations of what are we doing okay? Where do we need to improve? And what are we missing totally with this? And I think people would tell you. I really think if you asked, they, they, they want to be heard. Yeah, it's, I think that's that's absolutely right. And and another mistake you ask for what are the things that you can do. A lot of companies make the mistake that they treat hired employees the same as acquired employees. And uh, hired employee uh, acquired employees obviously they are they're very different than acquired than than hired employees. They they don't have the moment where you get the job, right? That's, that's always great. You you go through interview cycle, you get the job, you're super excited. And you cut you you start day one with this excitement, right? Acquired employees, it's the other way around. They, you just, they never you inter- just, Yeah, you just went from I you know, a love marriage where you you put you you selected your spouse, right? Your job. You you went to that dating process, the interview, you got married, you you got hired, right? To an arranged marriage. Guess what? You're married to this guy now. <laughs> <laughs> then you're waking up next to somebody else. Okay. That's yeah, you roll over and go, who the heck is this? Right? Oh, yeah. we, re- we rearranged it. You have an arranged married now. You know, right. me- meet Jose. You know, he's, your, he's your new spouse. So Exactly. The, the second reason is when you hire employees, they come with a clean slate. They, have not, they, they don't have a day job. Uh, companies, acquired company employees, they have to keep their business up and running while they're doing the onboarding with you. So they, they have a full day job. They can't, they, they're just, they, their day is already eight hours full. And, and the third reason is that if you hire an employee, usually you, uh, you bring them into your team and they're surrounded by people that have been there for a while and they have figured things out. So they basically have an organic support network around them. Uh, high, uh, acquired employees, quite often they move in teams so they are not surrounded by people. So if you have like a clunky expense reporting system, right, and you, you have to enter your expenses, you, you can't just turn to the left or right and say, hey, you know, Fred, how do I do this? Because they are just surrounded by people that also are new to the process, new to the tools, new to everything. So it's, it's very different. 
I can see. I I think uh, from the next, I've got a couple I'm working on negotiating. When we acquire our next target, that I think probably weekly. Um, and this is for I'm helping do some negotiations of acquisitions outside of just myself. I'll get a piece of them, but I think weekly going forward in those the first few weeks, especially first few months, every week I'm going to just send out the, a little questionnaire. What are we doing well, right? What could we do better? what are we totally missing? And a lot of times I honestly see, and I've done this before, the what of the missing isn't that it wasn't on your roadmap or that you weren't intending on taking care of the missing items. You just weren't there yet. And you hadn't communicated that or understanding the value of that missing item. You underestimated the value of that missing item to that those individuals, right? So you might have something like, yeah, we're going to get the payroll integrated too, it's, it's six weeks out and then your missing items is like, why are we getting still getting separate paychecks than everybody else? Why are we like, why are we having to do two different payrolls? Like, especially HR departments, why are we running two different payroll? You know, why are we having to you know, do this two different ways? And just that, what are we missing? A lot of times happens to be just a communication process. Like, yeah, we've identified that. We know we're going to do with it. We're going to do with it in week eight. Right. Right now, let's, let's tackle these other things. We're getting visibility into, you know, what are the things that you bring together Mm-hmm. And, and that's why um, we don't call or we often call the uh, uh, acquired company employee onboarding process longboarding. It takes longer. And a lot of companies, they think the onboarding process first two weeks or three weeks and then you're, you're done. Well, for acquired company employees, it's much longer than that. And you have to treat it like an onboarding process where you give people slack and you give them time to learn and time to adopt because you can't expect them to come in with the same ex- uh, excitement like hired employees. It is just different. You cannot treat them the same way. We were, uh, I was at a tech company and there was an acquisition announced. It didn't end up happening. The biggest fear that was the, the conversation of all my employees, I had about two dozen people on my team. And the biggest concern was, is they knew the other company and the deal fell apart in some of the due diligence, but they, we'd already told the employees and started this integration process of we're going we're to be acquired uh, and who we were being acquired by. And, you know, it, it actually got an- announced in the uh, in like a press release. And uh, it wasn't it was a done deal to some level, but they ended up unwinding it because it just went bad. I, I won't say the two companies because I don't know if I have the authority to say so. But the biggest concern on my team was is that other company has a performance metrics and every, it's a big company. And every, uh, once a quarter, I think is the other every quarter, every six months, they had a habit of laying off, purposely laying off the lowest 5% of all their performers, right? And we're a smaller team and they're like, you don't stand for that. If we had, if, you know, for my team, like if I had low performers, I'd, I'd already replaced them, right? So they're like, you're going to have to adhere to this thing. And, you know, there's 35 of us. So every few months, there's, you know, every six months, you're going to be hiring somebody new because you're going, you're going to have to let go of your lowest, lowest guy in the totem pole. And, uh, you know, part of you is like, don't be, you know, you, you kind of joke with the guys at first because you didn't realize, at least I did. I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. You're not the lowest guy in the totem pole. He goes, yeah, not now. But what if I am? Right. There's that underlying fear of two different cultures, two different things. And, and you'd be surprised at how well, especially in today's time and internet and access to glass door and everything, people know the culture and the, business practices of this other company they just know it it's it's out there you think it's a secret you think it's you know internal cultural type of things but i would venture to say there's very few true secrets anymore like coca-cola keeps a recipe a secret short of that everything else that happens at that company is probably on glass door right 
And perhaps there's really nothing there there in regards to the Coca-Cola secret recipe. Yeah. <laughs> it's called so, sugar. Yeah, lots, lots of sugar, right. Uh, maybe that's what we need to do with these acquisitions. We make sure everybody's loaded up with caffeine and sugar, and they'll keep them happy, right? We keep the uh, dopamine and the endorphins up high and just uh, – <laughs> all right. Well, I've asked a lot of questions. We covered a lot of topics. Let's cover the, the two main things we need to cover because uh, we are past the hour mark. So how do people get a hold of you if they if they want to reach out to you and have you, you help them out with that? And kind of what is the target customer? Like what size of a company would be realistically to come work with, you know, with you? Right. So um, you can get you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, yeah. Chris Bogdandi. That's uh, probably the easiest way. Um, uh, another way is through my email, uh, chris.fonbogdandi at slalom.com. I'm not going to spell that out. Uh, it'll be in the show notes, right? It will be in the show notes. And, uh, um, again, we, uh, uh, we are supporting small deals. The smallest deal that I did last year is 30 people, uh, $20 million acquisition. So a really small deal. Um, but it was important for that company to to get it right, and also they uh, they wanted to develop uh, M and A playbooks for all the functional areas. So because they were going to do more acquisitions in the future, so we uh, um, we basically uh, um, developed the 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 playbooks, and uh, um, and it was almost like a primer. That, that acquisition was a primer. They they did a couple of more deals after that. So uh, um, yeah, and all, all the way, you know, we, we do multi-billion dollar acquisitions as well. Um, but uh, um, certainly the smaller deals, it, it, it's really, if you're looking if you're looking at the investment that you're making with an acquisition, um, thinking through how do you, how do you de-risk that investment and how do you accelerate the value realization uh, is uh, in my mind worth, uh, worth an investment and especially for companies that mostly grow organically. Three takeaways. If you, uh, if, if somebody can only remember three things from the show today, and, and and of you, like remember three things they learned from you and what you, you you want to be known by, what would you say you want the three takeaways for today to be? If you don't get the people piece right, you don't get anything right. Number one, onboarding acquired company employees is different and much more complex than onboarding hired employees. Is number two, and number three. Think of the uh, um, think of not just the people of the acquired company, but also your people in your organization, the, the acquiring company, your customers, your shareholders, your partners, your vendors, as as human beings that will be disrupted by that transaction, and that need empathy and that need uh, um, um, a plan for making sure that they are coming along on the journey. And don't just assume that because this is great for you and your strategic journey, that it is great for everybody. Right. I get that. I appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show today. Uh, hang out for a second when we're done. And uh, that's the show, guys. Thanks, Ron. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you.
I don't want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, self, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in napoleon's hill's famous book think and grow rich with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E-P-M.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.